0: Today is the Wednesday before Easter, and in the church calendar, this is known as Holy Wednesday or Spy Wednesday. It's called this because it marks the day that Judas played the spy, the day that he secretly went over to Jesus' enemies and made a bargain with them to betray him. In the hours before Jesus did that, there was a meeting that took place in Jerusalem among the highest echelons of the Jewish leadership. I don't think it was a formal session of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, but most of that group were there. And it's this meeting that we're going to consider this evening as we turn our attention towards the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. now This gathering is mentioned in each of the three synoptic Gospels, but we're going to look primarily at Matthew's account. So if you would, please turn to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26, and I'm going to read the first five verses. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26, beginning reading at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Amen. Let us pray. O great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation of yourself and your way of salvation. We thank you that in your word we see your Son, our Saviour, And I do pray that you would show him afresh to us this evening. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand the text of Scripture before us. And we commit our time together into your hands. In Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want us to think about as we consider this meeting in Jerusalem is who exactly was there. Uh, Matthew identifies three groups and one individual. First of all, he mentions the chief priests. These were the leading priests who oversaw the temple. And you have to remember that at this point in history, the temple was a large complex of buildings and courts that covered perhaps as much as 25 acres of land in Jerusalem. And it wasn't just a place of worship. It had become a massive financial hub as well. Tithes and offerings would flow in from Jewish communities all around the Roman Empire and beyond. These were the tithes that the Jewish people were obligated to pay according to the Mosaic law. Local currencies would be changed into the currency that was accepted in the temple treasury. There was also a vast trade in sacrificial animals. Especially around the annual feast days when tens of thousands of pilgrims would pour into the city. As we know from the Gospels, this trade went on inside the temple precinct. The chief priests administered all of these financial aspects, and it's probable that they personally profited from them. The chief priests were at this meeting, as were scribes. Now this title literally refers to one who writes. The scribes were those who wrote legal documents and those who copied the Torah. But in this context, it refers to those who were experts in the law, teachers of the law. 21 times in the Gospels, the scribes are grouped with the Pharisees. Now, not all scribes were Pharisees, perhaps most were not, but they were both groups in first century Judea and Galilee that were highly knowledgeable of the law and highly committed to observing the law and the vast web of traditions that had been developed over the centuries. The third group at this gathering were the elders, then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people. These were likely older men who were heads of families or men who had some other prominent role in community life. They were distinguished men. They held this position on account of their experience and their wisdom. And then Matthew mentions the high priest Caiaphas. We know about the high priest's role from the Old Testament. Uh, He was the spiritual leader of the nation. But by this time in Israel's history, the office had assumed a greater role in terms of civil government. During the period between the Old and New Testaments, the, the high priest became more like a prince. Under the Roman occupation, the high priest was appointed by the governor and he lived in a palace in Jerusalem. Caiaphas was appointed by Valerius Gratus, the predecessor of Pontius Pilate, in the year 18 AD, and he would hold that office until the year 36 AD. So that's who was present at this meeting in Jerusalem. These were powerful men. Men who were held in high esteem. Men who were God's representatives. And I'll say more about that in a moment. It's important to recognize that when it came to Jesus, these men had their grievances. I suspect all of them were to some degree jealous of Jesus' fame. The attention and the acclaim of the people was directed to him and not to them and they didn't like it. They were envious of his popularity, of the way he was being celebrated everywhere he went. We know from John chapter 11 that there was concern among the chief priests that Jesus was a threat to their position, a threat to the arrangement they had with the Roman occupiers. John chapter 11, verses 47 and 48. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. If, if the people hailed Jesus as their king, as their deliverer from the Roman occupation, the, the Romans would be provoked into taking swift and brutal action. The Jewish leadership would be removed and perhaps the whole nation destroyed. These powerful men didn't want this prophet from Nazareth putting at risk their situation, which was for many of them quite comfortable and profitable. There were these concerns, but we also have to remember what had just taken place in the city. Jesus had entered into Jerusalem as a king. The symbolism of his procession into the city was unmistakable. Hosannas had been ringing through the air. If these men were nervous about Roman intervention before... They most certainly were after that spectacle. And then what had Jesus done? He'd gone to the temple, hadn't he? And disrupted the money changes and disrupted the trade in sacrificial animals. He'd interrupted the chief priest's commercial operations. And one can imagine how that made them feel. And then the day after that, Jesus had stood up before the crowd and denounced the scribes and the Pharisees in the strongest possible terms. He pronounced a series of woes against them, condemning them for their greed and their hypocrisy, for the way they placed burdens on others and excused themselves. Oh, yes, we can understand why the men at this meeting were upset. We can understand why they hated Jesus. Now, of course, this is not at all to excuse them. They were aggrieved because they were proud. They were aggrieved because they were greedy and selfish and jealous. Jesus had confronted their sin and that made them angry. Now, when you think about who these men were, it is rather stunning to witness what they wanted to do, to to listen in on what they were discussing. Look, please, once again at verse 4, the text says, "...and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him." The bluntness of Matthew's account catches us, doesn't it? They consulted that they might take Jesus and... Kill him. What immediately came to my mind when I read this recently was the sixth commandment, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 Thou shalt not kill. Think about it. These were the spiritual leaders of the nation, these were God's representatives, responsible for his worship and his law. These were the shepherds of God's people. Here were the priests who offered sacrifices for the sins of the people on God's altar and led them in worship. Here were the scribes, the men who knew God's law better than anyone else and were responsible for teaching it. Here were the elders, the the older men, the esteemed men, the wise men, fathers and grandfathers. Here they all were planning to kill organising a murder, plotting to break one of the most fundamental commands that God had given his people. And it reads as though none of them batted an eyelid, none of them had questions or doubts, that there was no argument about the morality of this. They just wanted to get it done. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, The Apostle Peter said that Jesus was put to death by wicked hands. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter was talking to the Jews. He was was laying this charge at their feet. The Greek word is atnamos or anamos. It literally means without law, lawless hands hands that had complete disregard for the law of God. That was the men at this meeting here in Matthew chapter 26. They were totally indifferent to the law of God, the law they supposedly loved, the law they were supposedly devoted to. When we ponder this, who these men were and what they wanted to do, When we take a seat at this awful meeting, we are thrust into the darkness. We see complete moral bankruptcy. We see bottomless depths of wickedness. We see hatred and greed and bitterness. We see men totally enthralled to the power of Satan. It's as if Satan was there presiding over this assembly before he went and entered into Judas. Maybe he was. It's an ugly, ugly picture. But there's one more part of it that I'd like us to concentrate on. We're going to spend a little more time in the darkness I want you to notice their concern to commit this vile deed without drawing much attention. Here in our text in verse 4, we're told that they wanted to take Jesus by subtlety, that is, by means of deceit. They weren't going to send men to murder Jesus in broad daylight while he was addressing the crowd. No, they wanted to allure him to his death or have him framed. They wanted it done in such a way that didn't draw attention to themselves or upset the crowd. The last thing they wanted was for the people to turn on them. We're also told in verse 5 that they didn't want to kill Jesus on the high and holy day of Passover, when the city was filled with pilgrims and overflowing with religious fervor. Verse 5 says, But they said, not on the feast day. Lest there be an uproar among the people. They knew that Jesus was an extremely popular figure at this time, and having him killed on such an occasion might provoke a riot. They didn't want to make themselves unpopular with the people, and they didn't want to bring down the heavy hand of Rome for causing public disorder. Their intention was to have Jesus killed probably after the Passover given that it was only a couple of days away. And so we have this meeting and we have this wicked plan, a conspiracy among the self-righteous to murder the actually righteous. The darkness of sin was descending and growing thicker by the hour, Shortly, Judas would arrive and the bargain would be struck. Jesus would be betrayed to his enemies in a garden with a kiss. But that said, it is true that we can view this dreadful scene. We can watch these men plot and plan and scheme and not be afraid and not be troubled. We can watch this meeting unfold even with a sense of joy in our hearts because we know that out of this great and terrible darkness, God brought unimaginable light. I couldn't help but think of Joseph's brothers who hated him so much, who, when they had thrown him into a pit, plotted and planned and schemed... And eventually, sold him as a slave, got rid of him, made some money out of him. It was a malicious thing to do. It was wicked. But the Lord was over that whole situation. I won't recount the story now. But when Joseph, the prince of Egypt, was reunited with those same brothers, he said this. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Isn't that exactly what we see here in our passage in the gospel of Matthew? Now, these men thought to do evil against Jesus, and they did do evil against Jesus. To quote the Apostle Peter in another place, They denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto them, and killed the Prince of life. They slew Jesus and hanged him on a tree. These men perpetrated the greatest evil of all. They murdered the Christ, the very Son of God. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass the greatest good of all. He used their greed and their hatred and their wickedness to save much people alive. This is the marvellous irony of the gospel. This is the incomprehensible wonder of God's sovereignty what these men perpetrated against Jesus in the providence of God saw Jesus fulfill the very purpose for which he had come into the world. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In his bloody death upon the cross, Jesus bore the sins of the world. He bore the curse of the law that falls on those who break the law. He purchased redemption. He brought reconciliation. He merited righteousness. He won forgiveness and everlasting life for sinners, for every sinner who will repent and trust in Him. Because of what these men plotted in the darkness of their own hearts, there is gospel light. Jesus stands forever as the Mediator, the Redeemer, our Lord and our Saviour. And another thing, these men didn't want Jesus to be killed on the high and holy day of Passover. They didn't want his death to be a public spectacle. But God overturned that plan as well, didn't he? One author expressed it this way. Not at the festival, said the plotters. At the festival, said the Almighty. A friend recently pointed me to a couple of paragraphs in J.C. Ryle's Expository Thoughts on the Gospels where he comments on the plot to kill Jesus. He, He comments on this passage of Scripture we've been looking at this evening. And I thought it would be worth quoting these paragraphs in full, because I couldn't put it any better. Please try to listen carefully to these wonderful words. The overruling providence of God completely defeated this political design. The betrayal of our Lord took place at an earlier time than the chief priests had expected. The death of our Lord took place on the very day when Jerusalem was most full of people and the Passover feast was at its height. In every way the counsel of these wicked men was turned to foolishness. They thought they were going to put an end forever to Christ's spiritual kingdom and in reality they were helping to establish it. They thought to have made him vile and contemptible by the crucifixion and in reality they made him glorious. They thought to have put him to death privily and without observation and instead they were compelled to crucify him publicly and before the whole nation of the Jews. They thought to have silenced his disciples and stopped their teaching and instead they supplied them with a text and a subject forevermore. So easy is it for God to cause the wrath of man to praise him. There is comfort in all of this for true Christians. They live in a troubled world and are often tossed to and fro by anxiety about public events. Let them rest themselves in the thought that everything is ordered for good by an all-wise God. Let them not doubt that all things in the world around them are working together for their Father's glory. Our God... The only God, the the creator of all things, brings light out of darkness. He he did that in the very beginning. He, He said, let there be light. And there was. We see him doing this in his dealings with his ancient people, Israel. And we see him doing it supremely in the gospel. And this ought to give us great encouragement. And especially as we approach this Easter... Easter in the year 2020. It is a dark time for our world. When we listen to the news, our ears are filled with reports of death and disease and suffering. Uh, Just this morning, New York reported the highest number of deaths in a single day so far, over 700. More people have now died from coronavirus in New York than were killed in the terrorist attacks on 9-11. And similar things are happening in cities and countries around the world. It's a dark time for our nation. People have died, thankfully, in nowhere near the numbers as we're seeing in other places. But the economic and social consequences of the pandemic are taking their toll. The darkness has even encroached upon our own lives. Uh, The coronavirus has brought with it fear and uncertainty and disruption and fatigue. Many of us are tired. We're trying not to let the circumstances get to us. We're, We're trying to hold ourselves together and it's not easy. Thankfully, we're not alone. Christ is with us by his spirit always and we have each other. We can also take heart today and in the weeks and months to come in knowing that God will bring light out of all of this. He already has. That's what he does. I've seen some of that light in the way we are sharing with each other, being more open about our struggles and our joys like Christians are supposed to be. I've seen some of that light in the way people are seeking to keep in touch with friends and family members. It's like all of a sudden they've remembered how important those people are and those relationships. I've seen some of that light in the opportunities that have come to speak about our faith, to to share the gospel. Perhaps more are open to listen, given the fear and the uncertainty that's come into their lives. I've seen some of that light in the way that God is using these circumstances to expose my heart and refine my faith. And maybe you're seeing that in your life too. God will bring light out of all of this. We can be sure of that. If you doubt it, look at the Easter story. When the darkness descended, the light burst forth and was never so bright. My dear brothers and sisters, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May God bless you. Amen.